Talking industry, topical debate from the world of engineering, automation, and manufacturing. A DFA manufacturing media production. Brought to you by Drives and Controls, the number one engineering magazine for automation, power transmission, and motion control. Visit drivesandcontrols.com. Well, let's uh, let's see if we can help um, help Amanda with uh, with her future career prospects. Um, well, both Alan and I are hiring Amanda, so please yeah. reach out to us uh, <laughs> after the uh, after the call, and we'd be glad to meet with you. That would be great, and uh, I'm sure that uh, any any help would be very much appreciated. Alan, let me come to you just to uh, round this part of the um, debate off, and then and then we'll go into your experiences of of COP26. Yeah, to, totally agree with David. You're never, never too old and never too young. I remember when I started out in further education, um, doing my, I was doing my OND at the time in electrical and electronics. So I was a couple of years out of school, and a couple of they were classed then as mature students. I don't know what you're supposed to say these days, but these two gentlemen were were late fifties, had been made redundant, um, had a had some money so they didn't have to work and they chose to study electrical and electronics formally study and I can't remember their backgrounds but uh, they were great role models for for young people like the rest of us where they were they were in class they were on time they were really taken seriously they did very very well in all the theory exams uh, and they were highly motivated and I can imagine people like like them or, or somebody even as old as Amanda, and, and I know Amanda, so hopefully I can say that, um, who then brings a different set of experiences into industry. So you can have people who are later stage in their career, who maybe they've been involved in some part of industrial automation, maybe some somebody I hired not that long ago um, is, is in his 50s, if I can say that. Um, and it was interesting when, when the person he was taking over from, he was retiring and, uh, and we were, we managed to, to persuade Dan Foss, I don't know if it was official or unofficial to have a transition period and that, that sort of knowledge transfer, which made a huge difference. The new person that came in wasn't from a, a drives background as we know it today. It's much more, um, high performance servos, motion control, high speed comms super super approach and super mindset to really learning and today he's just performing at such a high level in the world that we work in so that's somebody who is coming a little bit later has got a great base background and is now making such a positive impact to us as colleagues and, and to our customers but getting that blended in with people who are a lot younger I think is the key and having that knowledge transfer with some of the people that have had those experiences and all the best experience you get is on site. You know, I've been fortunate enough to visit maybe, I don't know, a thousand customer sites in my time and been involved in things like commissioning steel mills, paper mills, you know, going to these aluminium reduction mills, that was quite scary. You know, having some of that experience blended with the young talent that come in I think that's part of the key to success. But again, I agree with David. This this is the most exciting time. I've been in drives and power electronics for 25 years or something like that. It's the most exciting time I've ever known 
because drives are power converters. For me, they're being used in so many different applications. They're not just turning a motor. You know, the, the whole electrification part, things like microgrids, battery under storage, renewables, you know, these are sectors that have been there for a very long time. And, I, and I've been part of that for a very long time. But see now the pace and the pace in the UK is so exciting. I've never known anything like it. You know, we talk a little bit about power to X, so it could be power to whatever, it could be hydrogen production, it could be renewables, it can be producing lots of different things. This is here and this is happening now. And from my perspective, the UK is at the forefront of a lot of that development work going into sort of small scale manufacturing, moving into larger scale manufacturing. And for me, and, and part of my responsibility and, and the responsibility of my team and the other power converter manufacturers is to support those organizations, which I think will make it even more interesting for, for the younger people uh, coming out of college or university or school, get an apprenticeship, but also for people that may be transitioning across from different sectors or different industries. If you've, if you've got that right attitude to learn and willingness to learn, you can do it. And there's never been a better time to do it. Absolutely never. It's, it's, it's so exciting. Such an exciting period of time for us in the industry. But it's also so relevant because now instead of having maybe a diesel generator running 24-7 on a building site, there's, there's sort of renovation work going on near my house at the moment. And uh, a couple of months ago, I, I turned up building a new house and there was a diesel generator running. It was late Friday afternoon and uh, the workforce weren't really being totally active, I would say, but that diesel generator is still running to provide electricity when they use their power tools. Nobody was using them. It was noisy and it was polluting and it was using fossil fuel. So customers now are using battery energy storage systems for that purpose. It's they're silent. They're not using any any fuel whatsoever mm. what a diff, what a transition there in technology by using power converters absolutely yeah and, and generators themselves of course will be using different fuels won't they and um you know the it seems that talking to a a, a customer in the middle east a few days ago and you know and, and fuels relatively cheap and so is labor out there as i'm sure you know but um they they see probable transition to gas fired generators as a sort of a middle mm. ground, but ultimately solar and and hydrogen will be the uh, the power sources that that will be used for those sort of applications. I mean, well, one thing just just again on trying to attract talent. So um, within Danfoss Climate Solutions in the UK, so that was formerly the, the heating and cooling elements of the business. So f fantastic people, big organisation. Um, great products that help in energy saving, maybe not so much associated with energy saving, but very much so. Um, and they started a program just prior to COVID. And the, the team there hired six and classed them apprentices. And most of these were post-grads, but there were people that were coming to join Danfoss as an organization and get involved in the world of climate solutions. And it was really exciting to see how those people again just just took to this thing where maybe it's seen as more of a conventional industry but when you and like most technologies when you actually
dive into the detail is fascinating. And what companies can do now for reducing their carbon footprint, for reducing their energy consumption by using you know, great quality products, such as from Climate Solutions. So it could be um, high efficiency uh, valves, condensers, heat recovery units, um, heat exchangers. You know, there's so much in industry and, and I've started to learn more about that as I can. And I can see how we can make a huge difference and more knowledge that we have of any of us being out on site and our colleagues being out on site and making customers aware of what the possibilities are. It really is an exciting time. Mm. Um, where, where you get a new person coming in, and, and we must move on, but how long do you think it takes for them to get up to speed? I'm, I'm thinking of our you know, apocryphal 37-year-old. Um, how long would she take to get up to speed with, uh, with, with a manufacturing industry? Well, knowing that individual, not very long, because she worked <laughs> really, really hard and she's really, really smart. But, uh, it's, it's a tough one, of course. It's, it's, all, it's all down to application, really. How, how hard are you willing to work? What effort are you willing to put in? And, and a lot of it is down to mindset, in my experience. Um, so I, I would say it depends. In the role as an engineer, so I studied electrical electronics. I was a, a young engineer when I eventually left further education. Um, how long did it take me? Quite a while, I would say. Uh, depends on your environment as well. I was very yeah. fortunate. I, I, I spent some time at GEC at Kidsgrove on a drives application program. That was a year's fully salaried training course to be a drives applications engineer. Um, and then I started learning. So it, it really is how long is a piece of string. The great thing is there's so much online now as well. So we're not constricted mm. to, to nine to five. You can learn, get yeah. more exposure online. Um, but it's down yeah, to the I environment, think, I think, too. I think it's a, lifetime, it's a lifetime of learning, right? It's basically what we're describing because our industry is permanently changing. Yeah. But it doesn't mean that you need to wait a lifetime before you've got any value to add. The whole point of this is that there are so many different roles and opportunities and learning experiences and different pathways you can take. You can be doing meaningful work in a relatively short space of time. But if your end goal is to be a controls SCADA systems engineer, then yeah, I mean, you're, you're talking 10 plus years to be, you know, let loose on your own on something complex like that. But, mm. um, you know, if you're going to be lifting and shifting uh, transformers and substations, then I would suggest that we could get you up to speed a lot faster. So it all depends on which career path you're going to take and and that determines it. But what I can guarantee is there is literally opportunity every day to learn something new. Great. Okay, we must move on. Um, let's let's talk briefly then about your experiences at COP26, Alan. Okay, um, a few experiences. It, it, first of all, it was fantastic. It was hosted in Glasgow's my home city. So really, really proud um, that we managed to persuade them to have it in Glasgow. Um, and it was around October, which is when we tend to have the front cover of drives and controls. So it was really nice that they positioned COP26 when we had the front cover of drives and controls. So, so thanks to the organisers for that. And um, thanks for the plug. We like it. Yeah, you're welcome. When, 
when we started to look at COP26, um, and it is a little bit of a plug, but it's also very relevant, I think. So we reached out to the facilities management company, it's Honeywell, um, in the host venues at Glasgow. And we thought that the majority of variable speed drives at COP26 and in those venues where, where Danfoss or Vacon, so the Vacon brand remains, it's, it's part of the Danfoss organization and has been for, for nearly 10 years now. So we went and met with the Honeywell engineers who were fantastic. They, they took us around, showed us you know, a lot of the, the facilities there behind the scenes. So re really exciting actually to go into the plant rooms and find what was 97% of the drives handling the air and the, the primary and secondary water were Danfoss or Vacon brandy drives. So we then had the opportunity to understand that, you know, what functions are those drives actually doing in providing, bringing in clean air? Remember, this was a period of, you know, concern over, over COVID still. So bringing in the clean air and then expelling that out into the atmosphere or treating it and then moving the hot water around. So we get the chance to understand how much energy saving. So it was a, it was a case in point. So you've got COP26, we're trying to save the planet, I'm really pleased to see that a lot of the buildings already had variable speed drives fitted. And Honeywell, I have to say, managed those facilities really, really well. You know, they were absolutely on top of making sure that the drives were set up correctly, um, they were applied correctly. And we highlighted a few potential areas where they could actually do some different things. So, so that was great to put technology into COP26. On visiting, I think the things I that struck me, the, the, the mix of demographic was quite broad and the, the geographies from where people had come from was fantastic to see. It really was a truly international event. Um, I was fortunate enough to meet people from lots of different countries. But again, talking about that demographic, a lot of younger people that were there talking about the environment. So those were some of the real, real positives. Some, some interesting things to see. I think JCB were there um, showing their hydrogen powered um, backhoe loader. You know, there was quite a lot of electrification, hybridization and use of hydrogen was quite topical. One thing that I'll never forget was when I left one of the main venues and was, was walking away, a lot of these were powered by diesel generators. So COP26 of power by diesel generators. I mean, oh dear. I, yeah. I was, I was a, a bit disappointed, shall we say, because there are alternatives. So, so those are some of my, my lasting memories. What I really wanted out of COP26 was something from the politicians to say, here are some real actions we're going to take and they're going to stick and we're going to make these happen. And, and they're not kind of in my line of sight, unfortunately. So apologies for those that have been implemented and, and, and have been implemented, but, uh, but overall fantastic experience, you know, to see that mix of people from different backgrounds and nationalities that really were passionate about this massive problem that we've got. Some of the companies exhibiting fantastic technologies, really, really fantastic technologies, but we're still being powered by diesel gen sets. So there was quite a lot of engineering presence then. Yes. I mean, you 
which is which is encouraging and yeah. uh, but but perhaps a difficulty of melding the political side to the yeah. engineering side and they never the twain shall meet and I think, and I think that's still, and I think my panelists might agree. You know, I think that's one of the big challenges that we've got within the UK and, and other countries is how do we get the political side to really understand the potential of organisations mm. like ours to maybe give that guidance and that input so that we can do things better and saving yeah. a lot of time and saving a lot of money to get there a lot quicker because the problems are here and now. Yeah, and, and I think that's that's the key, one of the key takeaways that, that perhaps you might like to quickly comment on that, Nikesh. I mean, how do we get politicians to understand all the great works that that, that our businesses are doing? Yeah, it's it's a, it's a difficult difficult uh, feat for anyone. Um, we're trying on a daily basis. We we have quite close links to all the different government groups, including the new new base as they like to call it um, the, the new department for net zero um, and really and truly we do as a as a trade association you know we provide collective responses to all their consultations on different areas of um, the, the energy trans the energy transformation list for example energy technology list um, where they get together um, data on from manufacturers about you know how how best to improve the production and how best manufacturers products can be energy efficient looking at different areas like that um, and you know i've mentioned it before that there are there are times where it is often the decision makers who are not do don't normally have the full understanding of the products that manufacturers are producing to be able to create mm. the you know the same line of what's required and what they would like to be done, what they would like to be achieved and what needs to be required of often two different decision makers. Um, so that can come sometimes create quite a gray area um, for what they would like to achieve and what manufacturers can actually deliver. Um, and I think the, the understanding, the fundamental understanding of the products such as variable speed drives, soft starters, these sorts of products, they, that needs to be mm. understood a bit better by the government organizations before they yep. can start getting them to act but yeah it's it's working and we're constantly working together with our member companies to to try and send that message across so um, you know it's it's one of those things where perseverance is key excellent okay well i'm sure we'll come back to that towards the end of our uh, webinar but david i think it's time for you to uh, to give your scheduled presentation <laughs> as such we have and um, and it's really about the uh, the, the data driven insights and, and the importance of um, of digitization in the whole energy efficiency debate. Yeah. Okay. Thanks, Andy. And uh, I, I I've listened um, to pretty much most of the topic points have come up today. I think in in the conversation so far. I mean, Alan, you just pointed out a really great one, which is efficient building management. So what what you witnessed in uh, in COP twenty six. Um, you know, a, a well-run building can be 40 to 50% more efficient mm. than a badly run building. Now, I mean, that's rough yep. average, let's say 300 kilowatts um, per hour per square meter versus anything down to 180, 160 to 180, which is makes a huge difference. Um, so, and that's another one of those, you know, all the technology is probably in most buildings that you work in. Yep. But whether it's effectively used or not 
is 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 the uh, is the key. So I think Andy, I mean, the, the the bits I've probably not touched on so much would be um, I talked about setting a baseline, understanding where you are, and and there's a number of ways of doing it. Um, we and me personally are a firm believer that you can't have sustainability without digitization. I don't believe it's possible, or and it's certainly not going to be its most effective in our industries. Um, so you have to have a baseline and you have to know where you are to be able to understand and set goals and ambitions on where you want to get to and really understand what's possible. More importantly, what's the return on investment for you in doing that? You know, is it a meeting a regulatory demand like net zero by 2050? Is it to meet a legal requirement like I have an up to date single line diagram for my manufacturing facility? Um, or and everything else in between, or I want to remove cost or optimize my operation so I can remain viable as a business. Um, so, so that baseline piece is really important because once you've understood the baseline, then we can you can you don't stand a chance unless you understand what is possible to change. So that's where that measurement piece comes in. Um, and, and we can do a number of different things. I spoke in the chat earlier about the the, the baseline assessments. You know, there's a number of companies, not just the Schneider thing, but obviously I'm going to recommend Schneider um, that are offering either free or, you know, subsidized energy assessment audits. And that's a great starting point, um, depending on how deep it goes, because there's energy audits of a facility. And then there's down to that granular detail that I was talking about earlier, which was really interesting. And I was hoping the poll was going to come back the way you uh, you showed it, because um, that's 99 percent of the time. Most people know where they are from a cost standpoint. Very few have any idea on where or what and what's the most efficient place to start. You know, is it the heating? Is it the manufacturing? Is it the building? Is it the fleet? You know, the, there's so many different areas that impact the energy cost build. Um, and really understanding what you can do at the least amount of cost to make some headway to stave off some of the issues. and. Um, whether that's the, the sourcing. I don't know whether anyone replied on what their cost of energy was. Um, I didn't spot that, but that's a really great point is how are you sourcing your energy? Where do you source your energy from? How protected are you? Do you use PPAs or are you stuck into a contract? When does that contract end? What What's the impact of when that contract is? So there's a number of different topic points that you can go through very quickly. Um, there's an online assessment tool as well um, that allows you then to understand where you are. Um, and I said earlier about, you know, 80, 90 percent of every facility we go into has tons of equipment that's not connected. And the minute it's not connected, it just goes into the other bucket on your energy bill and it gets thrown in with everything else. And you have no way of addressing it, not efficiently, at least not without a lot of manpower or, or a lot of time. So now once we've got that measurement and monitoring piece in place, then you can start that automation and control piece a bit like Alan was talking about it's one thing having variable speed drives installed it's another thing optimizing them mm. and they don't stay optimized because they're driving something that's electromechanical and guess what electromechanical over time changes and it has to adapt now you've got two ways of doing that you can pay someone once a year to come in and physically do the the 40 year old plan preventative maintenance approach on it um, or you can digitize connect it and ask someone like Dan Foss to do it remotely other drives are available from other manufacturers, by the way, for anyone that's interested. Um, but um, the, the point is that's the technology enabler, but that's also how you tackle some of these, you know, 
uh, recruitment issues and, and retention issues that we're talking about having those skilled resources. Once you've got that in place, you can put clever things in like energy management software that sits like an umbrella across your facility. Because once you've started connecting all of these dots, you need to visualize it in a way that makes sense so that you can consume that data and actually make data-driven decisions off the back of it. Once you've made those data-driven decisions, you also need to see the benefit of it. And on some complex facilities, and I think you spoke about aluminium smelting earlier, which is a really great example, that seems on paper to be quite simple. You melt some billets and you extrude or you press or you mold some uh, aluminium, but it's actually a really complex process for anyone that's interested. And you need a huge amount of data to be able to control the process. And they will not make a single change without modeling ahead of schedule and understanding what the net impact could be. Because if they screw up, it can cost millions to recover from. So that data landscape, that picture or that pane of glass that you can look through only becomes possible when you connect and when you analyze and when you set yourself a baseline to work from. So I think that's that's probably the uh, the big piece. Um, you know, that data-driven approach, you have to work from fact. Running on gut feel and looking for the biggest thing that's got the largest amount of smoke coming from it is not an effective way of using what limited resources we've got. And if we deploy our energy that we use today in a smart way, we have so much potential for energy savings. If all of us saved 20%, we literally don't have an energy problem for the next 10 years. That's, and we know that we can save you 40, 50 plus percent today. So there's huge yeah. opportunity for us to protect the economy as well as our businesses and livelihoods as well. I mean, that's a very good point. I mean, 20%, I mean, even on the 80-20 rule, that, that should be pretty straightforward for most industries, one, one would think. Exactly. Can, can you tell us a little bit about the associate consultancy programme? Because I'm, I'm conscious of what's appearing in the, um, in the oh, chat at that... the same time. I mean, there's some really excellent material coming in from both Schneider oh, and Stanford. Okay. Um, I, um, I just wondered if you could explain a bit about that. Yeah, so, so one of the biggest issues that our customers are facing is uh, I, I, I go and meet with all sorts of wonderful customers a bit like Alan does and um, some of them present me with wonderful pathways to net zero and they've got these strategic sustainability goals um, and they often once they get down into the nitty-gritty of okay I've got this ambition and this aspiration and this is these are my green credentials then the question comes is okay so how do I do it and th and that's that's where Schneider's consultancy business around sustainability is just I, I literally cannot hire enough in that space and it, and it wouldn't matter how many I hired I wouldn't meet the demand um, across our customer base now so we've to address exactly what we were talking about earlier the skills gap is we recognized very early on that we'd become part of the problem we were relying on the industry to have built up, you know, find these individuals that have got the 30 years experience and then hire them from Alan or whoever else um, as quickly as we could to fill our need, whereas actually we had a responsibility to create our own. So we started the associate um, consultancy program where it can be a grads, it can be apprentices, it can be um, um, Amanda, if you're interested. Um, it can be anyone that wants to transition. We, we create this associate consultancy role and you basically shadow and go on um, 
go on that learning journey with our experienced consultants. And we've just taken that another step forward in industry, particularly around um, smart factory, um, where we've invested in, uh, in a few guys now that we're sending on a, a 10 month intensive training course in our smart factories in France um, to really learn how you move from that 40, last 40 years that we've all lived through into what's the next 40 years look like. Um, and one of those is transitioning out of the armed services. Another one is coming out of the graduate program. So absolutely green as grass, the pair of them. Um, so we're running a bit of an experiment with those guys as well to see whether, whether we can do our bit to accelerate the knowledge base within our industry. Thank you. Um, it, it's time for you, Alan, to, uh, to sort of take that forward and talk about um, some of the actual technologies, perhaps, that, uh, that are behind the uh, potential savings that are, that are available. Uh, after that, we've got um, a number of good comments and questions that have come in, which I will acknowledge and then take um, at the end as a, as a mutual discussion opportunity. Thanks, Andy. I mean, I think David makes so many great points. Um, like one one thing I would say is we can very simply make some some really significant energy savings by applying variable speed drives correctly. So we know fine well um, it's a cube law running on a centrifugal fan or a pump, and many of them are still running off a fixed speed starter, so a direct online start delta. You fit a variable speed drive correctly and Dave is absolutely right the motors as well if you've had one in for a while it may well um, need to be sort of re reset up but reducing the speed generally speaking by around 20 percent you'll save around 50 percent of electricity you know that's just how it works it's as simple as that so we did a an application recently it was um it's a an institution they've got lots and lots of Variable speed drives already fitted, and um, they looked at fitting another one. Simple 30 kilowatt fan motor. Um, and we just put into our, our energy audit template. So we've got a, a simple model uh, when we're carrying out. I like simple things when we're carrying out an energy audit. And I think this was running, it's only five days a week, 12 hours a day, and reduced the speed to 80%. And at 10 pence per kilowatt hour, the return on investment was just over one year and it saved 10 tons of CO2 in a year. There you go. So anybody out there that's got 30 kilowatt, 15 kilowatt, a little bit more, a little bit less, by all means, please consider. And it's one of the things I'll, I'll mention later, but really like to the audience to consider is, is having companies like yourselves or others like Schneider, responsible companies, who can provide an energy audit and make sure that, that we understand um, what we have in our respective facilities. Are they running on fixed speed? Is variable speed the right thing to do? It isn't always the right thing to do. Sometimes a soft starter, if you, if you are going to just run at fixed speed um, and set up correctly, a soft starter is the right approach. But generally speaking, you will get significant energy saving, even in a constant torque application. If you're running conveyor systems and you typically because of process, you need to reduce the speed anyway. Instead of using the mechanical gearbox, you can use variable speed drives. 
you reduce the speed by 20%, broad brush, you'll make a 20% energy saving. So there's, there's so many applications that the application of a, of a variable speed drive, quite simply, will make significant energy savings. Um, so that, that's, that's one point, but I really like what David's saying, you know, the more we understand by measuring, by putting these systems in, I think Schneider's a very progressive company when it comes to these sorts of areas, really, really progressive, got a suite of tools that they can use for our customers' benefit, whether they use our variable speed drives or Schneider's or whoever, you know, the most important thing for me is how do we help UK and Ireland PLC to become as cost-effective, as competitive with other markets? How do we enable our customers to not just stay in the game, but to really prosper? And I think by investing in the latest technologies, that's a great step forward. So for me, you know, there's many other case studies we've done with the gaps to energy audits, but we've got around 100 people in the UK in our partner network and in Danfoss organization and variable speed drives, the drives experts. And we are really keen to be able to help people to understand what the potentials are. Um, you know, there's going to be more of a push, I think, on providing your, your path to carbon neutrality and ultimately to net zero. And just by providing an, an energy audit document, you've got a bit of a pathway to do that. So again, really, really encourage people, if you are interested in having an energy audit, reach out to myself, you know, reach out to, to us as a panel and, and let's get those things started. I saw, I saw a question in the chat there. What steps are we taking uh, uh, for us to become net zero, fantastic question. Um, one thing that Danfoss has done, our Norborg headquarters um, in Denmark. So it's a it's a group of manufacturing facilities and and offices. It's our headquarters. It's two hundred and fifty thousand square meter facility. And I think it was twenty fifteen. It was entirely heated by driven by fossil fuels. Okay, so we had an aspiration then to become net zero, uh, sorry, sorry, carbon neutral by, and I can't remember what year it was to be perfectly honest, we achieved it by the end of 2022. So that entire facility is carbon neutral with the plan to get to net zero. And I think it's by 2030, we're looking to get our entire operation as, as net as carbon neutral. So I think companies like ourselves and, and I'm sure Schneider, um, we really are investing in our own technologies and complementary technologies as well. We, we don't manufacture heat pumps, for example, but we supply a lot of the controls and the valves that go into a heat pump system. Uh, there's some discussion at the moment you see on social media and the news about domestic heat pumps. I'm not an expert in heat pumps, I'm really not. But from what I read and from what I hear from my colleagues, certainly if you look at industrial heat pumps, really make a lot of sense. They really, really do make a big difference. So we're employing technologies such as those as well to help us continue on that journey, ultimately to, to net zero, but at the moment onto carbon neutrality. I think the other, another point I wanted to mention with regards to variable speed drives is you know, not, not one approach fits all. So we've had a couple of instances where we've been asked to look at a site. Now we've got... Um, couple of different topologies, one being 
a conventional six pulse variable speed drive that generally we would fit with an active filter for harmonic mitigation, if that's an issue. But we also have active from in drives, so effectively back to back inverters. So they were developed a long time ago, actually, typically for hoisting applications. So recapturing the energy on a crane or an elevator when when the load comes down, you can capture that energy instead of dissipating it. Um, but they are also effective for harmonic cancellation. A couple of big projects we've looked at, um, and we've done the study of six pulse and active filter versus our active front end low harmonic drive or, or an alternative low harmonic drive. And the energy savings that we've found have been so significant, not just in reducing the speed, but actually the the six pulse and active front six pulse and active filter being more efficient and one project our calculation was over the 20-year lifetime that we'd expect the system to run for the savings nearly six hundred thousand pounds at 10 pence per kilowatt hour mm. six hundred thousand pounds not just by reducing the speed by choosing the right topology of six pulse and, and active filter yeah. so you know there's it's a message there. We we have active front end low harmonic drives. We try to apply them where we feel it's the right place to apply them, not everywhere. So it's it's great to have that mix of approaches. I think those points, um, and again the point that David made, motors generally degrade over time, or say you've got a drive with a motor, and the motor has either been rewound or has been replaced. What I'm conscious of is the drive generally may well need slightly retuned to work with that new motor or that rewound motor. So companies like ourselves have features in the drives by doing that effectively a, a motor identification run, do that and you can save up to 5%. So it's making sure that you continue to engage with maybe your service provider or the manufacturer such as ourselves to find out what are the things that we can do to really optimize efficiency, whether it's fitting a variable speed drive in the first place, commissioning it correctly, if you've had an upgrade, making sure again the drive's commissioned correctly, um, and choosing the right, the right approach. Is it six pulse? Is it active front end? And just generally getting that advice. And then going back to David's point again, how do we measure those things? Ideally, mm. we for the investment. We go to a lot of our competitors. And when I say competitors, I'm talking about other countries. This is UK PLC trying to stay ahead of the other countries. You know, they will be investing in these latest generation technologies to try to make sure that they are as energy efficient. And I think about even, even OEMs, you know, for me, the smart OEMs are the ones that are investing in the latest technology that can then have that as part of their value proposition to say. Our systems provide this level of efficiency for you, Mr. or Mrs. End user. And you know, sometimes it can be overlooked. I think the smart ones are doing it already. And why wouldn't you? It's investing in being able to measure and control and optimize, because then that's a real selling point over the ones that maybe don't do that. So it's a, it's a huge subject, Andy. You know, there's, there's just so mm. much to discuss on it. Um, and one, just one, one last point, if I can, is mentioned briefly earlier about heat recovery. You know, there is so much heat 
wasted by. I think data centres globally account for something like 1% of electricity demand. You know, I think yeah. the, the UK, the, according to IEA, the EU27 and UK for data centres in 2020, that counted for 3.5% of the electricity demand in the region. So there's mm. a lot of electricity consumed, there's a lot of heat. And I think that that heat can be captured and reused as well. I think one of my colleagues might put in the chat, we've published a couple of white papers and one is on excess heat. Um, and the other one is on the demand side and the demand side really is what is our demand? You know, the backdrop for myself says the, you know, the greenest energy is the energy we don't use. Yeah. And we just switch it off. You know, that's yeah. the best thing really. That's our ultimate energy saving. And, and whoever come up with that that slogan, it's just brilliant. We, we it did is. it for the IEA absolutely. conference last year. It's absolutely brilliant. And if, if nothing else, if people can take that away with themselves today, the greenest energy is the energy we don't use. Then Yeah, got that. Thank you very much, Alan. Thank you for listening to Talking Industry. Stay tuned across all podcast apps, follow us on social, subscribe to our newsletters, and keep up to date at talkingindustry.org.